This is the Eurasian Enigma from the Davis Center. The Davis Center. The Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. Hello and welcome to the Eurasian Enigma. My name is Chris Martin. I'm the Outreach Director at the Davis Center. And today I'm lucky to be speaking to Rawi Abdelal, a professor at Harvard's Business School and also the director of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies. And uh, this is the second time we've had the chance to talk to Rawi. He was our very first episode of the podcast talking about Russian relations with Turkey. And today he's here to talk about uh, globalization, which is something that's obviously a very big topic in today's world. Welcome, Rawi. Thank you very much. It's great to be back. So I think globalization is on the mind of lots and lots of people. And I was lucky enough to hear you speak recently on the topic in a talk that you have titled The State of the World, which um, for me, at least, it gave a very compelling framework to understand some of the movements and trajectories and events um, that have been happening over the last I'm not sure how long, uh, maybe you'll talk about that today, but help me make sense of a lot of the things that I've been reading in the newspaper over the last six months, year, two, year, two years. I think that most people, regardless of their political affiliation, would agree the world seems to be more in flux now than it has in our um, sort of collective memory. We've seen the challenges facing the EU, uh, the rise in migration, rising nationalism, calls for isolationism, and, uh, and now we've had the recent election um, in the U.S. of Donald Trump. So many people are saying that based on these events and processes that the era of globalization is over. And I'm curious if you would agree with that statement. Well, uh, I have many thoughts about ways in which this era of globalization might continue and ways in which it might end. But if I were to say on a bumper sticker, the answer is yes. And it began to end actually maybe 10 or 15 years ago, and we're seeing the culmination of some of these trends. I should start by saying that uh, although I have uh, sometimes allowed myself to give a talk called The State of the World. Uh, it's not as much uh, hubris in that as it is uh, amusing myself that I imagine that we can cover some of these grand topics in a short amount of time. But let's just say these are things that keep me up at night. Well, I think for a lot of people, feeling they have a command of the state of the world is comforting. So I definitely took comfort from the idea. But uh, understanding, of course, that it is just ideas and a framework. You talk about three themes as part of this era of changing in the process of globalization, great power transitions, the increased meaningfulness of borders, and economic inequality and the center, meaning the political center. So let's maybe talk through those three themes and let's start with uh, great power transitions. We are seeing a shift away from the U.S. as the only major superpower. Can you tell us a little bit more about the context and significance of that shift? Absolutely. And if I could take a minute to put it in historical context as well. Uh, when we talk about our era of globalization, what we're really talking about is a second great era of globalization that began in the post-World War II period. It really began to pick up steam in the 1980s and 1990s and 2000s. And if we think about the first great era of globalization and the ways in which it ended and that ending having quite a bit in common with the challenges that we face today, I think it's useful to understand. We sometimes mistakenly imagine that globalization is an inevitable, inexorable process that's been ever increasing ever since the Phoenicians and nothing can stop it. And 
the only thing we know for sure about globalization from the history of it is that it's not inevitable, it's not inexorable, and in fact, it is a fragile thing. And if we think about what we're talking about, about globalization, let's be clear that what we, what we mean in this conversation, or at least what I mean, is the market integration for goods and services and capital across country borders which is to say, how bounded are markets by country borders? Are they really global and transnational? Or are they bounded by country borders in a way that production and consumption and financial systems are all really national systems? If we think about the first great era of globalization from about 1870 to 1914, we know that that era came to an end, and it actually came to an end for reasons that... I think we might be worried about our current era of globalization. We were going through a great power transition. We had right-wing populism and left-wing populism in many countries, a kind of societal rejection of, of globalism and internationalism and international trade. And as well, that was the last time we lived through an era in which income inequality within countries was as high as it is today. So these themes are really relevant to both the 1914 to 1945 period when that last era of globalization was destroyed and the era through which we're living today. If we just take a moment to think about Russia's place in this, since here we are at the David Center, mm -hmm. uh, and characterize a few moments, it helps us, I think, to make sense of how we've gotten to to this particular situation we have today. So let's say between 1945 and 1991, we actually had two competing systems in the world. The Cold War was uh, the outcome of those two, two competing systems. One was the US-led system, which began to lay the foundations for what we eventually began to call globalization. And then the Soviet system and its was more closed off to the world economy. It was based on communism and state socialism. Then after the Soviet Union collapsed, the 1990s were an era of choice for lots of countries, especially the post-Soviet countries, about whether they were going to integrate themselves into the U.S. organized system. And during the 1990s, Russia tried to do exactly that, as did most of the other post-Soviet states. From about 2000 until 2016, we had some of post-Soviet Eurasia having fully integrated into that globalized system, led still by the United States, but with the important participation of Europeans and the European project of integration as one of the foundations of that era of globalization. And Russia increasingly resisting that U.S. organized system. Not rejecting it, but certainly reflecting some national disappointments about how the 1990s had gone and what it might mean for that U.S. organized system going forward. By the time we get to 2010, 2011, 2012, some of the trends pushing against globalization are already clear, but one of the clearer elements of the overall order of things is the culmination of 30 years of Chinese economic growth at around 10% a year, so that China is now either the world's largest economy, if we 
account for output as a share of world output, adjusting for local prices, or the world's second largest economy, if we don't account for differences in local prices, with the great power transition at hand. So we now live in a world not of U.S. predominance, but of two great powers of roughly equal economic size with very different visions about how to organize the world. And it's really that great power transition that we have today in common with the last era and the way in which it ended. A lot of great powers trying to recreate, in a sense, in their own image, the global order. The unusual part of the 1945 to 1991 period in terms of global order was that the United States was so much bigger than everybody else. So even though we had a kind of geopolitical rivalry between the United States and the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union itself never really accounted for more than five or six percent of world output. It wasn't economic. It was not an economic superpower. It was a military superpower. And it punched above its economic weight in the world. So this long, slow, steady, relative decline of the United States from the moment when, very unusually, around 1945 or 1950, the United States accounted for almost one third of the world's output, which is really, I mean, it's really incredible to think that we, we ever lived through an era in which there was one nation that accounted for a third of the world's output, really standing apart from everybody else, all of the other nations in the world were less than 10% of world output. So the United States had this moment to rewrite the rules of the system in its own image. And it was really that post-war period, the early post-war period in which we began to lay the institutional foundations of what we still have today, but which is fragmenting. So do you feel like having a multipolarity in the world is a good thing for balance? Well, it's a great question. I would say if we can leave aside for a moment good or bad, that part is inevitable. Like it was never going to be true that the United States was going to maintain that kind of predominance in the world. And in fact, if we think about the language that we often hear today in our political rhetoric of making America great again, I think that there is a, a kind of fantasy embedded in that, that somehow we could go back to that kind of predominance. But the rise and fall of great powers is a cyclical process that has been underway for centuries. And it's just not realistic to imagine that that one nation can be so predominant or should be so predominant. If we try to think about what's good for the world, I would say globalization has created the opportunity for other nations to increase their share of world output. China could not have grown at 10% per year for 30 years if it had not had the opportunity to sell what it made in world markets, open world markets, and in particular in the United States. Uh, Chinese households do not drive and have not driven Chinese growth. That growth was driven primarily by U.S. households. And it was a kind of match made in heaven for 30 years in which we had one nation, the United States, which had households that saved roughly 0% of output 
and consumed vast amounts. And then we had Chinese households that did not consume very much, but saved a lot and produced lots of things. And this intimate relationship between the Chinese economy and the U.S. economy really transformed the global system and made it possible for lots of other nations to grow and to develop. And so in the sense that globalization naturally has created opportunities for nations to make their way in the world and bring tens of millions of people out of poverty, it's been a great thing. And that necessarily creates a more multipolar order, which is good in terms of balance. It's good in terms of the economic prospects of hundreds of millions of people. The only thing we might note about lessons from history is that multipolarity creates pressures for rewriting the rules of the system. And these great power transitions tend to be associated with rivalry among the great powers as they try to exert influence on how the world is organized. So they're a little bit more chaotic. They're a little bit more difficult geopolitically. So pluses and minuses, I would say. You mentioned the relationship between the U.S. and the Chinese economies, uh, the U.S. being sort of the, the, the importer of what the Chinese are putting out. But that relationship itself is also changing. So what does that potentially mean? for the future, if we consider globalization as primarily an economic model in a lot of ways, and a lot of the challenges to globalization are around the economic part of that model. Yeah, the that relationship is definitely changing. I think the view in Beijing, as far as we can tell from their own narration of it from inside the Chinese Communist Party, is that that party recognizes that their way of growing over the past 30 years has taken them about as far as it's going to take them. And looking at the U.S. household, which is frankly exhausted, it's indebted, it's uh, over-levered, the, the possibility of continuing to consume so much and save so little, it, it can't have gone on forever. And so the Chinese leadership understands that if China is going to grow more quickly in the future, it will be because Chinese households buy Chinese goods at a much faster rate than they did for the last 30 years. And so insofar as China has looked around the world for another nation like the United States that wants to buy so much and save so little and collect so many things, and there isn't one, they'll have to rely more on bringing up their household consumption and bringing down their household savings. The implications of that for everyone are really profound. If we think about the fact that China maintained a relatively undervalued exchange rate for that entire time in order to stimulate exports, the maintenance of that exchange rate required the Chinese central bank to accumulate trillions of dollars of foreign exchange reserves. There are now four trillions of those dollars sitting at the Chinese central bank. Those are obligations of the United States government, their U.S. Treasury bills. And as we think about a new model for Chinese growth that relies more on domestic consumption, it means that the Chinese central bank doesn't need to accumulate all of those dollars in order to keep the exchange rate low so as to stimulate exports. So this whole 
curious vendor finance relationship between China and the United States for these 30 years in which the United States kind of didn't have the money to pay for all the stuff we bought from China. So China loaned us that money so that we could keep buying Chinese stuff. That vendor finance relationship is slowly unraveling before our eyes. And so I think we'll see patterns of production change, patterns of flows of capital shift around. Even thinking about the fact that Chinese wages have gone up by quite a lot, and so they've priced themselves out of low-cost manufacturing, which has moved increasingly to Southeast Asia. So, piecing together all of these economic trends, this is a new world and and a very different world than the one we grew up in, the one to which we got used, which was actually a very strange sort of world if you think about it in in abstract terms. We tended to think that it was normal and just kind of how the world worked, but it was it was really unusual, actually. And so it shouldn't be too surprising to us that the world will continue to transform itself and we'll see a, a different collection of practices and agents in the world economy as a result. So globalization is largely based on economics, but not solely based on economics. And another impact of globalization has been the meaninglessness of borders, especially in Europe, um, as the EU came together and, and basically took down all walls to the people who were living within that zone. But we're seeing a change to that as well um, over the last few years. Can you talk about some ways in which borders are now being bolstered? Absolutely. And remember, it was not so long ago uh, when we had bestsellers on the New York Times list called The World is Flat, and it seemed like borders were increasingly irrelevant, not just for goods, not just for services, not just for capital, but maybe all, also for people. Maybe we imagined that we were heading into a world in which everything would flow easily across country borders, and it was just one big flat, as it were, to use the lingo from back in the day, space. It seems so quaint now, especially given our, our political issues, given the fact that there are increasing uh, measures to restrict flows of capital across country borders, increasing measures to restrict flows of goods across country borders, and then absolutely a, a kind of rebordering of what we had once imagined to be a borderless world in terms of the movement of people. I can't think of a single nation in the world that is mostly talking about making their national borders less meaningful. And everybody seems to be talking about making them more meaningful, more rigid. Even in Europe, even inside the Schengen area, which uh, is not strictly speaking uh, part of the European integration project, but Schengen grew up alongside it. And uh, for any American who's ever traveled to Europe in the Schengen era, you know you know what it meant, which was that you showed your passport once mm -hmm. and then traveled around and showed it once again on your way out. But whether you went to France or Germany or Denmark or uh, any of these other places in the sh inside the Schengen area, it seemed like the borders didn't matter. Now, in 2015... And we don't know the numbers yet for the end of 2016, but my guess is they will be even higher. In 2015, the world broke all known records for flows of migrants and refugees around the world, both in absolute numbers and as a percentage of the world population, just huge amounts of people fleeing war-torn areas 
looking for safety, looking for a better life, looking to escape uh, violence and destruction. And as they have done that, they have headed mostly toward, to the extent that they could, the developed world. Europe particularly, given its, uh, how close it is to some of those war-torn areas. And as we've watched the debates inside the EU unfold about how many of these refugees and migrants to let in, where they should be settled, who's going to pay for them, how they'll be integrated into these national societies, we can see that Europe has definitely not agreed among themselves about any of those questions. And even in Germany, which has been the most welcoming as a matter of policy, we can see a, a kind of backlash against what had been a, a really a hopeful set of policies by Angela Merkel to create a more welcoming atmosphere and take seriously, I would say, the responsibility of the rich nations to try to help all of these people. If we look at the Schengen area borders, we see razor wire fences. We see new border controls. Maybe that will be temporary, and I hope so. The Schengen area is an extraordinary achievement. But the trajectory is otherwise. The trajectory is toward a kind of rebordering, uh, even of Europe. Then, if we look at Australia, uh, a kind of rebordering process to deal with migrants and refugees has been official policy. And then in the United States, one of the signature policy platforms of our new president was to strengthen the meaningfulness of the borders of this country. Not just for people, although also for people, but for goods, for the flow of services, and for the flow of capital. So this really extraordinarily new language of trying to protect borders, strengthen them, prevent unauthorized or even previously authorized movements of all of these factors of production. This is, this is a, a new era for us. And it certainly does not seem like we're headed toward borderlessness. The last pillar that you mentioned as part of these, these three themes, and you've referenced it in terms of the historical context that you were putting the great power transition in, is the role of economic inequality. And um, we know that the material gains of globalization are distributed incredibly unevenly across the world. So how does this play into this globalization transition? Absolutely. I think that overall, we have seen in almost every country in the world during the last 30 years, economic inequality, in particular income inequality, that's what we're talking about mostly, income inequality has gone up. Not in every country, and there are a few exceptions, and there are important exceptions for what I think we can learn from them. But almost everywhere else, income inequality has gone up. It's gone up in China. In fact, China now has more income inequality even than the United States. And the United States is not a notably egalitarian society. And so then the question is, why has it gone up? And what does it mean politically? Now, there are lots of reasons it's gone up. It's not just because of globalization. Income inequality has increased in the United States because of increasing returns to talent and education. It's gone up because of automation. Uh, and it's also gone up because of the pressures for 
wage equalization around the world. If we have one big global market, then we would imagine that there would be pressure for the wages of people who produce those things to come closer to one another. Now, the United States is a country that can tolerate lots of income inequality. It's part of our national narrative. The American dream does not say everybody gets rich. It says some people will get rich and that they will get rich primarily as a result of their merit. The other part of it, though, is if we add in just how much more unequal the distribution of income has become in the United States. And then the numbers are, are really striking. If you look at the share of income that is earned by the top 10%, by the top 5%, by the top 1%, by the top 0.1%, it's really amazing just to see these trajectories and how they've increased over the past few years, the top 0.1% uh, of income earners in the United States now earn more than 10% of all national income. And it wasn't always that way. And during the 1940s and 50s and 60s and 70s and even 80s, that level was much lower. So the top 1%, the top 0.1% earned a significantly smaller share of national income during that earlier era. The last time the top 1% of national income earners in the United States earned such a large share of US income was in 1929. And it's really the politics of that that we have to be mindful of. It's not about what's fair or unfair, although we should have that conversation too. The fairness issue is a question of how we interpret this material fact. It doesn't speak for itself. And I think that increasingly what we've seen is that people feel that this is not fair. And they feel that it's not just merit that's determining the income distribution. And they also feel that globalization has played an unhappy role in this. So it's not the only reason why income inequality has gone up. But if you think about running a political campaign, it's not really compelling as a story to say you lost your job because you didn't study hard enough or you lost your job because the robot took it but you lost your job because some foreign nation stole it that's a winning strategy as it turns out and so the anti-globalization sentiment has really been part of this anxiety about income inequality. Now, if we think about the logic of why a globalized economy might lead toward that, it, it makes total sense. In fact, the, the basic logic of free trade among nations rests on the principle of comparative advantage. It's a simple little bit of math. If one nation specializes in the things in which it is relatively better at producing and another nation specializes in the things at which it is relatively better at producing and they trade with each other, there are gains from trade. And it's a very compelling little bit of math. Everybody can be better off on net, which is to say every nation can be better off on net if they trade with one another. But the on net part is really important. The process of moving labor and capital out of some areas of production and into other areas of production 
means that the logic of trade requires that some people lose their jobs. And that's not an easy process. Not everybody has turned out to be equally qualified to move from manufacturing into high-end services or the other kinds of things in which the United States has become more competitive. And insofar as nations have not done a good job retraining those people, insofar as nations have not done a good job sharing the gains of trade with them, if all that happened to them mostly was that they lost their job but nobody came to help retrain them, nobody helped to redistribute these massive gains from trade toward them, what we have is a situation in which the logic is still sound. Each of these nations can benefit on net from trade, but that's not a compelling political story, and it's not surprising that it's not a compelling political story to go to the unemployed factory worker and say, but don't you see, on net, the nation is better off. Why are you so mad? Mm -hmm. I would say, if I were such a worker, what do I care about on net? I'm interested in what's happened to my household, and my household has been struggling. And if you're telling me that on net, the nation is better off, all you've told me is that the winners from globalization have won big and they won even more than I lost, but I don't care. I'm pretty upset and I'm voting on the basis of what my household has been experiencing. There are nations, you, you mentioned that China and the US are, are both seeing rising income inequality in other places as well, but there are places in the world that are handling that better. What makes them, where are they and what makes them different? It's a really good question because there aren't very many of them, and it's not clear exactly what we can learn for them, from them other than a few principles. So they're all in Northern Europe. They're just a handful, let's say Germany, Denmark, and a few others. And these are really the only places in the world that have not seen really impressive increases in income inequality. There are lots of reasons for that. The two biggest ones are, first, they do an impressive job of redistributing the gains from the winners to the people who have lost. The other part of it is they have national systems for vocational training, for vocational education, for lifelong training of people so that it is comfortable and expected to move from job to job because you know that there's going to be another job and there's going to be a system for retraining you for that new job. And the next generation is going to begin to be trained and develop skills for the labor market from a relatively young age. And so those two pieces are really the principles. Nobody thinks we can take the German system of education and plop it down anywhere else and expect it to work the same way. But if we think about the principle that this sense of social solidarity and lifelong learning that's important for both of those, those principles we can learn from. And what's interesting is if we look at those nations and ask those people, are they in general in favor of globalization? They are 60 to 70% in favor. And if we go to the nations in which there has not been a commitment to that kind of social solidarity, and in which there has not been a system for vocational training and lifelong learning, and ask those societies, 
they are less than 50% in favor of globalization. The United States being a good example in which we made globalization. The nation has benefited a lot from globalization. It's our system. And no more than 40% of Americans think globalization is a good thing because it hasn't been directly for them. So the question is, how do we manage the increasing populist pressures in our political systems that are pushing against globalization if we want to save globalization? And I should say that I do. I'm in favor of it. I think there are downsides to it, but we can do a better job managing those downsides without, as it were, throwing the baby out with the bathwater. But what we've had instead are very simplistic ideas about maybe just having less of it, bringing the jobs back, and in a way going back to the past. So this, this really potent combination of flows of people and rising income inequality has given birth to very powerful populist movements on both the right and the left in most of the world. So it's not just the United States that we're talking about. It's uh, all across Europe. It's all across the developed world. It's in lots of parts of Latin America. This weakening of the center and fragmentation into a very irritated, angry right and a very irritated, angry left. And what is unusual from recent history, but not unusual compared to the end of the last era of globalization is that both the angry right and the angry left agree that globalization is problematic. And so in the United States, Bernie Sanders' language about globalization was not very different from President Trump's language about globalization. And that narrative that the system has not benefited regular people, it's not wrong. And it is a part of our political system, but I hope that we can come to a better answer than let's just blow globalization up. Mm -hmm. Or let's try and set the dial back to a time when we were further on top, say the 1950s, 60s, when there was this period of growth. But you've put me in a great place to ask the next question is that we've been talking a lot about processes. And I wanted to ask now about two particular events that were obviously the culmination of processes, but I think will help put a more specific look at this um, this transition. One is the Brexit, mm -hmm. and the other is the election of Donald Trump. They both come out of the same process, but they sort of have different implications. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the Brexit came as a surprise to lots of people, and I think it came as a surprise to many of the people who were pushing for it as well. This is not so different from the situation in the United States. We'll come back to that. The Brexit became not a referendum on the EU, which is what it was supposed to be, like should we stay in the EU or not. It became a referendum on globalization, and it really became a referendum on the past 30 years. You know, have you been made better off or not? And we see the, these very same tensions over income inequality, over the ability of individuals and households to compete in a globalized labor market, and over 
really how the last 30 years have felt. And also this rural-urban divide in the UK, in which Brexit came as a total shock to London. London was and has been one of the biggest beneficiaries of this era of globalization. And it's really London versus most of the rest of the country, with most of the rest of the country feeling left behind. And so the combination of those of those trends of deindustrialization, of the loss of manufacturing jobs, of the rise of the fancy service sector jobs in London, of lots of flows of people from the EU and from the rest of the world into this urban area, what we saw was a very potent mix of populist politics, this mostly being right-wing populism toward Brexit. It was on the right that there was uh, an ability to tap into this anxiety. And the Brexit came as a shock in part because it is almost certainly going to be bad for the UK economy. But still this feeling of, you know, this ride is going too fast and I would like to get off and go back to when this ride was going more slowly. Let's just return to this putatively glorious moment when the UK was something else other than what it has become. And is that similar to what we see? I mean, it sounds very similar to what we're seeing in the US with Donald Trump, this rise going too fast. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think overall, that that's my sense. There, there are a few other elements that are different. In the Brexit, the vote was broken down in very stark ways. The young voted to remain and older UK citizens voted to leave. And the proportions were really very striking. And you can see why the young might have been more inclined to stay. The value of their passport to be able to work in 27 countries rather than on one island, a lovely island to be sure, but it's just one. The vote on educational levels reflected these same trends. People who were less well-educated voted to leave. People who were better educated voted to remain. Income levels, people who earned more money voted to remain. People who made less money voted to leave. These are similar trends. The election of President Trump has in common that it became a referendum on the past. It became a referendum on globalization. It became a referendum on the status quo. And so in that sense, it was very similar. The vote breakdown has some big differences, not as stark a divide between younger Americans and older Americans, certainly not as stark a divide between uh, educated and less well-educated Americans, and not as stark a divide across income levels. But if we take into account a few other elements, in particular race in the United States, and we interact race with income, race with educational levels, and race with other parts of what, we're go what was going on in the system, then we see something that resembles the Brexit vote a bit more. And so for American men who are white, who have less than a college education, 76% of them voted for President Trump. And that swing has never been that high for as long as we've been keeping track of these data. So still thinking about this context of, well, in our economy, if you're not living in a city 
and you have less than a college education, you have probably been struggling. And that element of feeling left behind and wanting to go back to the moment where you could make your way in the world if you were a white American man, even if you didn't have a college degree because there would be some good job for you, those days are gone. They're probably not, by the way, coming back. Not in the way that some people imagine that they could be made to come back in any case. So that that referendum on the system as it is seen by lots of people, as it, ex as it is experienced by lots of people, I think that's that's very much the same sort of thing. And I think what's alarming from the point of view of trying to maintain the parts of globalization that we like is that these are not one-off things. The Brexit made the election of Trump more likely because it made it seem to people that maybe you really could try to change the system fundamentally. And we have ahead of us a series of elections and referenda throughout Europe, beginning in December with the Italian constitutional referendum, which brought down the Italian government because of a left-wing populist movement. And then looking ahead of us, the elections in the Netherlands, in France, in Germany, in which we have increasing, increasingly powerful right-wing populist movements objecting to either income inequality or flows of people or both, I think what we have is, is really a responsibility that we should recognize that it's not just the United States, it's not just the UK. This has become a kind of transnational movement on both the left and the right to reject the global order as we have it today. So it seems to me that the, the actions that President Trump has taken in his first few weeks in office are the kinds of things that appeal to his base, you know, the idea that we are putting up more walls to keep uh, certain kinds of people out, but they are not fundamentally going to fix some of the real problems that um, are facing the people that, who elected him in the first place and felt uh, unserved. What can we do? Knowing, of course, what our nation is about, um, what can we do to try and make difference? And is there something about how the U.S. has the local-federal divide? Is there something we could do more on a local level um, that would somehow allow us to keep the parts of globalization that we like, to somehow serve these people who have felt unserved? I think that's a great question, and I ask myself that increasingly <laughs> I mean, you regularly. Don't just have, you don't just have the answer? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't think I have uh, the answer. Um, I think it's true that we're going to discover that the economic part of the vote for Trump is going to experience disappointment. Now, the, uh, the border vote for Trump... Clearly, if you voted for President Trump because you thought that we should restrict flows of people and strengthen our borders and um, literally build walls, you're feeling pretty good. Like President Trump said he was going to do those things, and he has done those things in ways that have created lots of chaos, mm -hmm. but chaos that is probably not very meaningful to the people who voted in favor of them. On the economic side, however, even if we managed in the United States to bring back some 
production that currently happens in other parts of the world into the borders of the United States, it is not very likely that those production processes are going to employ the same number of people that they employ somewhere else. If those things get produced in the United States, they will be produced mostly by robots with a few people, but not the tens of millions of people in those kinds of jobs from how things looked in the 1950s, 1960s. And you also are passing on a cost to the consumer oh, to produce things in the U.S. that would have been cheaper to produce elsewhere. So there's... Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, think about the, the notion that, for example, the iPhone or the iPad would be made in the United States. If they were, they would be made mostly by robots and they would be much more expensive. And so there is a cost that gets passed on to the consumer. Even thinking about the ways in which President Trump has tried to insist that Mexico will pay to build a wall between the two countries as we renegotiate NAFTA. The latest thinking that came out of these conversations was that they would be, the wall might be paid for with a border tax of goods coming into the United States. That's not making Mexicans pay for it. That's making American consumers pay for it by increasing the cost of the things that they buy from Mexico. So that's actually making American citizens pay for it. So there are lots of ways in which people, I think, are going to find themselves economically disappointed by these plans. Which means, how should we think about revitalizing the American labor force? Not so that we can force production processes back into the country, but so that we can help them create and find better jobs for their children and for themselves. And here I think we should go back to one idea from what we can learn from other countries and another possibility that comes from our federal system, as you mentioned. So the first is, rather than forcing production, we should learn as much as we can from those nations in which they have managed to recreate generation after generation a highly skilled workforce. So rethinking how we do education in this country, rethinking how we do training in this country to make our workforce as competitive as possible and not assume that we have the right educational system to deliver to those people the kinds of skills that they're going to need to compete in a world economy no matter how globalized it is. Some of these processes aren't, as we said, about globalization at all. And I think the second thing that I feel more encouraged about is that because of the federal system in the United States, we actually don't have a highly centralized form of government. There are, of course, lots of things the president of the United States can do. And the president of the United States is relatively unconstrained in foreign policy. In domestic policy, there are lots of constraints. And... Some of those constraints are in the, in the judiciary. Some of those constraints are in the people. And we've seen lots of Americans expressing their disappointments with some of the new initiatives from the government. And that's part of our responsibility as citizens. But then also thinking about the ways in which really economic development policies in the United States aren't mostly made by the federal government. They're made by governors of states, and even more, they're made by city leaders. 
and to think about ways in which we can revitalize our ability to have local decision makers make the kinds of decisions about training, about education, about managing inequality at the local level is really what I've been thinking about most of all and trying to be engaged in our local politics. And as I think I mentioned to you, I actually am at least putting my money where my mouth is or my time where my mouth is. Uh, one of the very exciting educational agendas that I've become involved with uh, over the past few months is this new initiative led by uh, Michael Bloomberg and Bloomberg Philanthropies, which has uh, created a partnership with the Harvard Kennedy School and the Harvard Business School to spend the next four years on executive education training programs for U.S. mayors and members of their senior staff. Not because these aren't very capable people, they of course are, but insofar as we believe that lifelong learning and leadership development is good for everybody, every single one of us, myself included, this is a kind of initiative that really would be impossible to do without bringing some resources from outside city government because they don't have the resources to do those kinds of training programs themselves. So this is a really exciting opportunity to participate in the the re-energizing and revitalizing of city governance in the United States in a way to, that we can increasingly uh, well manage some of these challenges that we might not be optimistic about the federal government's ability to manage. That sounds really, really exciting, and we look forward to hearing how it works out. Thank you so much, Rawi, for your time today for this really illuminating conversation. My and pleasure. Thanks for we'll having back me back. We'll check back in and yeah. see what happens in the future. Thanks. Great. Thank you.